Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We are continuing in our series on Elijah, and um, we're just going to kind of jump right into some things this morning. First, right out of the chute, throughout this series, we've been constantly reminding ourselves that the story and the account of Elijah, Elijah is not the star of the story. Instead, Yahweh God is the centerpiece and the main character in the story. That being said, we also said that Elijah's name actually means Yahweh is God. Elijah's name itself points to the fact that Yahweh is God. Actually, in Hebrew, it's probably more along the lines of Eliyahu is how Elijah's name would be pronounced. And if you're familiar with some of the other things that we've done along the way, you can hear El, Elohim is the Hebrew word for God. And then Yah, Yahweh is the personal name of God. So Eliyahu, Yahweh is God. That's Elijah's name. As we've gone throughout this series, one of the things that we've really have focused on is since it is about God, how do we allow the character of Yahweh God to deeply impact and influence our lives? Our goal is not to simply say, wow, look what Elijah did or didn't do. Let's not be like him or let's be like him. That's not our goal. Instead, our goal is actually to use Elijah as the lens through which we see the faithfulness of God and how God works in our lives. Uh, sometimes when we <coughs> excuse me, deal with Scripture, the way that we interact with God's truth, it maybe does little more than float on the surface of our lives. And certainly when I place a block of wa- wood in water, there's certainly some water that's displaced. Some water is moved out of the way. But the fact of the matter is, many times in our lives, God's truth kind of just floats on the surface. What's underneath our fears, our anxieties, our disappointments, our discouragement, those sorts of things that are kind of at the core of who we are, stay there and remain there. And God's truth simply floats, if you will, on the surface of our lives. I means there's some water that's displaced. Maybe our behaviors change slightly. We live a little bit more morally than maybe the average person. Our lives might be a little bit more in line. We may go to church, those sorts of things. But the fact of the matter is, many times, the truth of who God is, his character, his being, kind of floats on the surface of our lives. It's kind of nice to have there. It kind of shows that we're a little bit God-oriented, but the rest of our life is, is still kind of what's there. Instead of being a block of wood that floats, our goal is for God's truth to be submerged into our lives, for it to go to the bottom of who we are. I can just tell you 
this rock and water displaces all of the water around it. Every bit of water kind of moves in response to that rock. That rock displaces the other stuff in the water. It gets to the bottom. It's weighty. It's heavy. It's deep. And one of our goals is for God's truth not simply to kind of float on top of our lives, but instead to go to the bottom where the the core of who we are actually becomes shaped around God's truth. That what's in our lives doesn't just hold up God's truth, but instead it's at the core of who we are. And at the core of who we are, it's shaped around the gospel. It's shaped around the person of Jesus. It's shaped around God's faithfulness, his grace, his promises to us. Our goal is for the truth of God to have weight and depth at the core of who we are. And so as we've gone throughout the account of Elijah, it's kind of been our goal to say, like, we don't want the truth of God simply to be known in our heads and float on the surface. But but instead, we want our lives to be wrapped around it. We want all of the other stuff in our lives to be displaced by the reality of God's truth. And so this morning, we're actually going to take some time and, and look at some couple of themes that we already looked at, but then jump into just uh, some of the rest of chapter 19, uh, more actually toward the end. Well, let's just do a little bit of review of where we've seen God at work in the account of Elijah. And I've got about probably 10 ways in which we've seen that Yahweh, the Lord God, works uniquely and differently. Number one, you might want to write some of these down. Yahweh works decisively. He, excuse me, he works decisively. Remember, 1 Kings chapter 17 opens, Elijah prays that there's not going to be any rain. And he says, the rain is not going to come until I give my word. It's decisive. There's a line in the sand. Yahweh, Lord God, acts decisively. Yahweh works overtly. Remember we said that in order to provide for Elijah, Elijah went by a brook. Ravens fed Elijah. That's pretty mind-blowing that God would actually cause ravens to come and feed Elijah. Later, he goes to a woman up in Sidon and Zarephath. And there, her jar of oil and her flour don't run out. God, Yahweh, works overtly. Everybody can see, wow, those ravens, that's an act of God. The flour and oil not running out, that's an act of God. It's an overt work of Yahweh. Yahweh also works naturally. Notice when he first went to the brook, God simply used a brook to bring water. It's not necessarily supernatural. It's not necessarily a wow moment. It's just a regular old brook that God uses, and it's very natural. Earlier in the Old Testament, God feeds his people by manna, by wafers on the ground. Well, actually, this widow lady actually had to cook the olive oil and flour. It wasn't just like, voila, there it is. It was actually somewhat natural. God actually used her flour and olive oil to sustain this widow, her son, as well as Elijah. God works naturally. Yahweh also works confusingly, we said, right? Yahweh works confusingly. 
Her son dies, and she goes to Elisha, like, what have I done that now my son is sick and dying? Like, who can figure that out? Yahweh works sometimes in ways that are just confusing. So it's decisively, overtly, natural, confusingly. Yahweh works graciously. Elijah raises this widow's son back to life. Just a gracious hand of a kind and compassionate God. Yahweh works hiddenly. When Elijah approaches Obadiah, we find out that Obadiah is feeding a hundred prophets in a couple of caves. Like, who would ever have thought that God is working in that way? You know, Elijah doesn't know that. Later on this morning, we'll find out that there's like several thousand people who have not bowed the knee to God. I'm sorry, bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah thinks that he's alone, but Yahweh works hiddenly. He's often works behind the scenes. This guy, Obadiah, is actually feeding a hundred prophets in a couple caves somewhere. Yahweh works immediately. Remember on the top of Mount Carmel, prophets of Baal, they bow down, they worship, they hoot, they holler, they scream, they yell. Baal doesn't answer. Elijah kneels and prays to the God of heaven, and immediately the Lord God, Yahweh, responds. He works immediately. Yahweh works emphatically. Remember, Elijah dumps 12 jars of water on the altar. It's drenched. There's a a trench around the altar. The water is looked up. Even the rocks are consumed by the fire. Yahweh works emphatically. So it's actually kind of starting to build. He works decisively, overtly, naturally, confusingly, graciously, hiddenly, immediately, emphatically. He also works gradually. Remember, the altar is consumed, and Elijah prays seven times for there to be rain, and eventually a cloud appears. I mean, Elijah kneels once and prays for God to send fire, and it's immediate. But he prays for rain, and he literally prays seven times before it rains. Yahweh works gradually. Something that we didn't look at too much, so that we'll just dive into for a few minutes, is that Yahweh also works triumphantly. He works triumphantly. I love the last couple of verses of 1 Kings chapter 18. Again, we've looked at this a number of weeks ago, but just didn't really dive into it, so I wanted to kind of go back and pick a little bit of it up. After Elijah prays for rain, it says this, Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. On the screen, you'll see a little map about where Mount Carmel and Jezreel are located. Mount Carmel is up there to the upper left. Jezreel is a little bit southeast of it, about 25 to 30 miles away from Mount Carmel. Verse 46 says, The power of the Lord came on Elijah. And I just love the picture of this. And tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. You can kind of just picture that, can't you? I mean, you can just picture Elijah tucking his cloak in his belt and running ahead of Ahab and his chariot. Now, that actually to us seems like, wow, cool, he outran him. There's actually a little bit more going on there. Uh, remember, Baal was absolutely the god of fertility and thunder and storms. And so Baal was definitively defeated when the real god, Yahweh, God sends down fire. But in many ways, Baal as well as Yahweh were actually often portrayed 
to ride on the clouds of storms. Uh, Psalm Psalm 18, verses 11 through 14, here's what it says. He makes darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Listen to this, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced. With hailstones and bolts of lightning, the Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. So even Yahweh, the true God, is often seen or portrayed metaphorically as the God who rides on the clouds, who shoots his arrows as bolts of lightning. Psalm 104, verses 1 through 3, the Lord wraps himself in light. We sing a song around here that actually begins with those words. He wraps himself in light. As with a garment, he stretches out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. Again, man, I just love this imagination and creativity. Uh, He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. I love it. He says, he makes the clouds his chariot. And so when Elijah is running to Jezreel and he's outrunning Ahab, it's not just a personal feat of strength of Elijah. The text actually says the spirit of God enables him to do that. And as Ahab sees Elijah running ahead of him, he realizes that this is sort of a picture of the Yahweh God, the God who rides his chariot on the clouds, that not only did Baal get defeated, but Yahweh God is also more powerful than Ahab himself. That the God who rides the thunder clouds, the God who rides in the storm, is actually propelling Elijah ahead of Ahab as as Ahab rides, and as, as Elijah runs to Jezreel, Elijah is outrunning Ahab. It's a a statement. It's a a visual for Ahab. Yes, Yahweh God who rides on the clouds is actually faster than you too, Ahab. It's not just Baal, but he's also faster than Ahab. Yahweh is triumphant. And the last thing, kind of from last week as well as into this morning, Yahweh is not only triumphant, or Yahweh works not only triumphantly, Yahweh also works patiently. Yahweh also works patiently. Remember, as we looked into 1 Kings chapter 19, here's how the first couple of verses of 19 begin. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me be ever so severely by this, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. That throws Elijah probably for two reasons. Number one, Elijah is obviously right away afraid for his life. His life is being threatened. Jezebel is saying, Elijah, just like you killed the prophets of Baal, I promise I give an oath that your life will be like theirs by this time tomorrow. And so Elijah runs, he's afraid. But there's also something else that seems to be going on here as well. Elijah is also frustrated. In fact, what we're going to find out is that Elijah is actually despondent, that God's victory on Mount Carmel is not as conclusive and doesn't have as many rippling impacts as Elijah thought that it would have. 
It's almost as though he, as Elijah is running ahead of Ahab. He's flush with the victory of Yahweh. He's flush with the sense that Yahweh has prevailed. Yahweh is victorious. And it's almost as though when he hears that threat from Jezebel, Elijah begins to think, wow, I thought that things would change. Like I thought this triumphant God who demonstrated himself on the top of Mount Carmel, I thought this triumphant Yahweh would actually change the heart of Israel, that every person's heart in the land would be changed, that Jezebel's own heart would be broken down, that she would acknowledge the great power of Yahweh. And, and Elijah's just thrown with the fact that what he thought would be definitive and have far rippling implications. Instead, he runs right into the threat of Jezebel, who's exactly the same person that she was before. And Elijah is like, man, like, I thought the outcome was going to be more significant. I mean, the fire was cool, but I thought the whole nation, I thought the Jezebel, I thought every person would see that Yahweh is the Lord and respond to that. But the lesson we're going to see is that Yahweh works patiently. Like he's not working on Elijah's timeline. He's not sort of jumping to Elijah's orders in terms of how he should respond and said, Jezebel's heart is still hard. There's still people who are worshiping after Baal. There's still people whose hearts are hardened toward Yahweh God. And so Elijah runs from Jezreel. Next slide I'll have, he'll go to Beersheba. He'll go to Beersheba, that's probably about 120 miles or so from Jezreel. Uh, to Beersheba, if you can put that map up on the screens, that'd be great. And then from Beersheba, he, <coughs> excuse me, he actually goes another 270 miles or so all the way to Mount Sinai, which was on the Red Sea. I think the slides are up there. Um, maybe the computer's stuck or something. Um, so he literally goes several hundred miles from Mount Carmel all the way down to Mount Sinai, which Mount Sinai and Horeb probably go by the same name. He gets to Beersheba and says he goes a day's journey and Elijah just crashes under a juniper tree. It's called a broom tree. There's going to be a picture of what that might look like as well as a um, kind of a rendition of what it might look like for Elijah to, to be there under the juniper. And Elijah says, God, I've served you well. I'm ready to be done. I've served you well. I'm ready simply to just check out. Just a couple things before we get into the rest of this. Don't you love how God responds? Maybe this is a little bit of a lesson we can learn, just even how God responds to his prophet. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever unburdened your heart to someone. And maybe you unburdened disappointment. You unburdened heavy levels of discouragement. You've unburdened a heavy sense of being defeated. And hardly could you get the words out of your mouth before the person that you were talking to kind of tried to straighten you out with why you shouldn't feel the way that you do. It happened to anybody like that? Raise your hand. It happened to you kind of like, yeah. Like you kind of lay out your heart. And right away comes like, oh, you can't think that. Like here's why you shouldn't think that. Don't you love the patience of Yahweh God with his faltering and struggling prophet? Don't you love it? that God gives Elijah space 
to be discouraged. He gives Elijah space to be despondent. You know, one of the things that we can do as we interact with others who maybe are telling us a hard story is just give them space. Like not feel the pressure. Oh, we got to like quick bring it to the resolution that's right. We got to make sure they get grounded and like just give them space. Isn't it great that God twice awakens Elijah with the angel of the Lord and gives him something to eat and drink. That the Lord even knows that God, Elijah is going to use that food to run further and further away in his fear. And God just gives him something to eat. Well, like, I don't know if you've ever went to somebody and just said, man, here's what I'm wrestling through. And maybe instead of like throwing the whole book of the Bible at you, they simply said like, you know, like, why don't we just get a cup of coffee? Like, what can I do to take something off your mind so you can just, like, get some rest? Or are there some things that I can do for you to simply take some of the weight off and just give you some rest? Like, sometimes it's such practical things that we can do for people who wrestle. Notice that the Yahweh God allows Elijah to sleep. Like, like God's not wringing his hands saying, oh no, like Elijah's deconstructing. I can't let him sleep because of what if he wakes up and he's totally deconstructed. Like the Yahweh God doesn't do that. He's like, Elijah, chill out, go to sleep. And, and, and Yahweh God knows that he's, he's still going to be at work and he's still going to be at work when Elijah wakes up. Like, like don't you just love even the confidence of Yahweh God and allowing his prophet space to doubt, space to fear, space to ask questions, space to be despondent. And Yahweh knows that eventually Elijah is still going to run into himself. He's still going to have an encounter with Yahweh himself. And so, Elijah, so Yahweh is just kind of almost relaxed and non-pressured in how he deals with his prophet. I love that. Well, Elijah does keep on running. Eventually, he does get to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And again, he has another interaction with Yahweh God there. I'm going to ask Moses to come up, and Moses is going to read First uh, Kings chapter 19, uh, the second part of verse 9 through the end of the chapter. And then we're just going to make a couple of comments on that. And just listen to the interaction that Yahweh God has with, Mo, uh, with Elijah as he's tucked away in this cave, as he continues to interact with him, even as Elijah himself continues to run. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9b. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak 
over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah, he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hezael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hezael, and Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and all whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there, found Elisha, son of Shaphat, he was plowing 12 yokes of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said. Then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I to do? What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his itinerant. Thank you, Moses. So a number of things happen there. Uh, eventually, God does give Elijah some instructions to anoint his successor, Elisha. <clears throat> He's instructed to anoint a couple of kings. There's a number of things that happen, but right out of the chute, uh, the Lord says, Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for I'm about to pass by. And what we learn is this. There's a wind there's earthquake, there's fire. And what we know for certain is obviously God caused all of those things to happen. It wasn't just happenstance. Uh, we learned that God came in a gentle whisper, but that does not mean that he didn't send the other things. God sends earthquake, he sends wind, he sends fire, but it says God wasn't in any of those things, even though he sent them. He was in a gentle whisper. Here's what seems to be happening. Earthquake, wind, fire. Uh, that's largely connected to what happened on Mount Sinai when the people heard and responded to the covenant that the holy God made with them. They responded that, yes, if we break the covenant, we will be cursed. We will be judged. If we keep the covenant, we will be blessed. That happened on Mount Sinai as Mount Sinai shook and as smoke billowed from the mountain. And what God seems to be saying is this, Elijah. Yes, I realize that you want me to respond according to my judgment as Yahweh God, because Israel has broken the covenant. But instead, 
I'm actually going to work patiently. I'm going to work graciously. Elijah, I realize that you're despondent because fire descended on Mount Carmel and you thought I was suddenly going to be victorious over the whole nation and I would finally rule and reign and I would be seen as king of kings and lord of lords. Elijah, I realize you want my judgment to reign on people like Jezebel who still don't believe in me. But Elijah, I'm a gracious God. I'm a patient God. And so I can send fire. I can send an earthquake. I can send wind. I could send my judgment. But just because I'm not sending what you think that I should send, even though I'm not doing what you think I should do, Elijah... I am present in the quietness of who I am. Let me ask you a question. Did you ever kind of get in a position where you're like, man, like where is this God who says he rules and reigns? Everybody feel like that? Yeah. Did you ever feel like sometimes you take, you've taken some huge steps for God and you've like put yourself out there? I mean, you've made sacrifices, you've made commitments, you've, you've spoken truth when it's been really hard, and you've laid yourself out there, and you're kind of like thinking, man, I thought I did my part. Like, where is God in this? Have you ever worried that, you know, we as followers of Jesus who say that one day Jesus will return and evil will be judged and righteousness will be victorious? Did you ever kind of have that gnawing sense in the back of your mind that, like, Man, it doesn't seem to be working out so far. Did you, ever, did you ever kind of feel like that? Did you ever kind of feel that, like what if you are on the wrong side of things? Like what if this God who we say rules and reigns, like do we just say that or what if he's really not cracked up to be all that he actually is? What if that's the case? And Yahweh's message to Elijah is simply this. Elijah, I may not show up in, with wind and fire and earthquake. I may not turn it all upside down in a way that you think would be a demonstration of my presence and my power. But Elijah, trust me, I'm present. Trust me, I'm with you. Trust me. I'm at work. Trust me that even though my victory may not be seen, my victory is certain. Elijah, trust me. I am the God who could do any one of those things. But Elijah, first and foremost, I'm the God who's just desiring you to be faithful. You know, we're not told of any verbal response that Elijah gave to that. Actually, we're just told that he continued to doubt. But we are told that eventually he responds to God's next invitation. Elijah, go anoint your successor. Elijah, go anoint Hazael. Elijah, I've got some tasks for you. And we find that Elijah actually did what he's asked to do. I'm going to ask our team to come up. And in just a minute, we're going to sing a song to remind us of God's faithful presence with us through his spirit. But while they're doing that, let me kind of just go back to this. How does God's truth 
How does Yahweh's works work in your life? Does the truth of who God is float on the surface? Or does it actually displace the other kinds of things in your life? Does it displace your fears? Does it displace your natural tendencies? Does it displace your own self-centeredness? Does it displace you ruling and reigning your own life? Or does it kind of just float on the surface where you still largely get to be who you are, but God's truth floats on the surface? Here's the deal, friends. There's a difference between believing in what is true and trusting in what is true. It's easy, pretty easy to believe in what is true, right? But believing in what is true is just kind of the truth of God floating on the surface. Do you not just believe in what is true? Do you actually trust it? Do you actually give your life to what is true? There's a difference between knowing what is true and absorbing what is true into the center of your life. Do you just kind of like know what's true? Or is that absorbed into your being, into who you are? There's a difference between agreeing that something is true and having that truth shape your life. Do you just kind of like agree to what's true? Or does God's faithfulness, God's righteousness, God's love, his mercy, his compassion, do you not just believe that to be true or agree that it's true, but the rest of your life is actually shaped around that truth. There's a difference between accepting what is true in your brain and digesting that truth in your soul and in your being. There's a difference between munching on what is true and marinating in what is true. So I don't know where you are in that, What I do know is this. The whole essence of the Christian life is the person of Jesus. His grace, his mercy, his love, his compassion, his truthfulness. The fact that we are in him. as we give our lives to that truth, not just intellectually, not just mentally, but as we absorb that truth into the core of our beings, our lives become shaped. This, it it changes some of your life. There's some behavioral change, but this changes who you are. This is the gospel at work 
because everything in your life begins to be shaped around it. No longer is the most fundamental thing, the the stuff down here holding up the truth of who God is. Instead, the truth of who God is is at the core and the center of your soul. And your life is shaped around it. We're going to sing the song, Holy Spirit. And let's sing it as a prayer. May God's truth, may his Holy Spirit be a gentle whisper. May it shape who you are. Sometimes my fear is that we're kind of like Elijah. I don't know, like, I feel like, man, God, if you sent earth and wind and earthquake, a wind and fire, like that would amaze me. That would dazzle me. Then I'd really believe. But most often, God comes in a gentle whisper. His Holy Spirit indwells you. His Holy Spirit reminds you that you're his son, that you're his daughter. His Holy Spirit brings the truth of the person of Jesus, that Jesus is your life. The Holy Spirit brings that truth to the core of your soul. And so as we sing this, let's not sing it up here. Let's sing it down here. Let's sing it with the, I'm not just going to voice these words about the Holy Spirit. These voice, these words are going to come from my core belief that the Holy Spirit indwells me. That I have his gentle whisper reminding me of the truth of Jesus and the core of who I am. So let's stand and let's sing this together. Let's sing it meditatively, reflectively. Let's sing it as a prayer. Inviting God's truth into the deepest part of who we are. Let's sing.
God, we confess that your truth often floats on the surface of our lives. Our self-ownership, our self-autonomy is still underneath. God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, the truth of Jesus would have greater glory and weight in our lives. That it would displace our self-ownership. That it would displace our self-autonomy. And that your grace, your mercy, your truth would shape us. Thank you that we are your sons and daughters. That we belong to you through the person of Jesus in whose name we pray and everyone who agreed said, amen, amen. amen. Hey, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless and have a wonderful day.